Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. I thought it might be a bit different this service than the first one, but I have to tell you I was just overwhelmed by the music. That last prayer in music, just unbelievable, deeply moving, and that was composed and written by our own Adriana Pereira and Nick Zork for this conference. We have watched in horror this week as the islands of Hawaii have gone up in smoke. I checked this morning before first service and the death toll stands at 80. No doubt that will rise throughout the week. A thousand missing on the island of Maui. And then the big island of Hawaii, South Kohala and North Kohala. I thought back to when my parents lived there and pastored in that district. Remember the beauty of the place, the warmth of the people. And I just have to say that my heart weeps for Hawaii. But you and I know something, something that is tragically true. And that is that next week it will be the same story in a different location. And the month after that again, and the month after that, and it just continues. So much so that it drives us to our knees asking what the souls under the altar, under the fifth seal cried out, how long, O Lord, how long? It took me back to the city of Jerusalem, to Jesus and his disciples in the temple. One gets a sense of the shock that they must have felt at standing at the Jerusalem Museum and the outdoor section and seeing the topographical map of the city and seeing how utterly overwhelming the temple was. So when Jesus and his disciples walked out and he made reference to the fact that here not one stone would be left upon another, you can sense their profound shock as they say, when is this going to happen? What will be the signs? And how do we know you're about to come? And then Jesus unpacks and gives them the signs, talks with them about it. It's at times spoken of by scholars as the synoptic apocalypse. The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, drawn from the word similar. You've read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you've noticed how similar they are. The synoptic apocalypse, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. But what interests me is John. John and the book of Revelation. There is good reason, Sigvitonstad documents this in his commentary, good reason to believe that John, the gospel writer, and John, the revelator, are one and the same. By no means do all scholars take that position, but there, in my opinion, are very sound reasons to believe that, which makes me wonder, is the passage we are about to look at today John's synoptic apocalypse? We're going to do something that I don't often do, and that is we're going to read 
a fair bit in the first part, a fair bit of Scripture. And we're going to do that because we are talking today about the breaking of the seals on the scroll. Thank you again to Marion Wagner for making this scroll with some help at times from her husband Bob and daughter Jessie. But it's good to bear in mind this image because the scroll was a scroll that could not be read. The contents could not be known until all seven seals were broken. Once the seven seals were broken, then the scroll could be opened for reading. We come to the breaking of the seals today but I want to ask you to avoid a very common temptation, and that is to think that as the seven seals are being broken, as we read of that in Revelation chapter 6, that the events that happen in Revelation 6 are the content of the scroll. They are not the content. The seals are just being broken. We haven't opened the scroll yet. They're being broken, and as in the throne room of God, that is taking place on earth other events are unfolding. My interest today is to notice the distinct and for me originally when I notice this stunning similarity of what happens in Matthew 24 and Revelation 6. Sometimes as you study Scripture, a passage that is a bit easier to decipher and understand sheds light on a passage that is not as easy to understand. Maybe the same will be true today. So we begin with the breaking of the seals in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 1. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come, I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. For many, especially those who take the historicist position, they will say that this white horse and rider symbolizes one era of the Christian church. I would suggest we think of something different, that this is a horse and rider bent on spiritual conquest. Conquest because this rider is given weaponry, that in the Old Testament means destruction and conquest, has a crown, is going to win at something. But it's a white horse. It's spiritual. In other words, when you see white in the book in Revelation, you tend to think of pure and good. This, however, I would suggest is not pure and good. It is deceptive. Matthew 24, what are the signs? Jesus answered, these are his first words. Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. Many white horses, don't be deceived. Second seal, when the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. The second horse and rider, red. In Scripture, often red symbolizes war. This one goes out to take peace from the earth, to create war. Matthew 24, second in order of what Jesus tells his disciples. 
You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Third seal. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. The third seal, a black horse and rider symbolizing famine and hunger. The scales in the hand of the rider symbolize the fact that there is going to be great care in taken and rationing out the food. The prices that are charged for the wheat and the barley are 8 to 15 times higher than they would have been for people in the day of John. People don't have food. The prices have escalated, inflated beyond what they are able to pay. They're starving. They're hungry. And then don't damage the oil or the wine. The oil and the wine were luxuries in John's day, suggesting that the rich had all they needed, even luxuries, while the poor died of hunger. Matthew 24, there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Fourth seal. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Fourth horse and rider. Hail, death, and destruction. Here we encounter one of the numbers in Revelation, a fourth of the earth. Remember this, in Revelation, commonly speaking, commonly speaking, numbers are not about math. They're about theology. They're making some kind of a theological statement, in this case, probably speaking to the fact that the death and the destruction is limited. It is not comprehensive and global. And then, Matthew 24, then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. Fifth seal. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altars the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each one of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. The fifth seal is broken to the cries of those souls under the altar asking, how long, Lord, how long? How long must we put up with this? How long must this continue? These are those martyred because of their faith in the Lamb. The fact that they were crying from under the altar, the place where the blood was scattered when a sacrifice was given, indicates that their lives were given, as it were, by sacrifice, and yet their blood calls from the ground, come, Lord, soon, enough, put this to an end and get us out of our misery. 
I just have to say in passing here that this question, how long, is answered by us. Soon, Lord, let it be soon. I hope it's soon, profoundly. But let me tell you this. I grew up in a world where it was soon, 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 soon until I didn't want to hear the word soon again. How long can you continue to proclaim soon? 2,000 years later, are we still staying soon? The message of Jesus, we will see it in a few moments, is the way that we live our lives is to live our lives in readiness every single day, whether he comes tomorrow or 100 years from now. We continue to follow the Lamb wherever he goes. The cry of soon, soon tends to, to, to hook into the fear that we feel. And fear is a terrible long-term motivator. It's a great short-term motivator, horrible long-term motivator. Just ask yourself, have you been in a relationship with someone who is profoundly insecure, who feels a lot of fear? How healthy was the relationship? So if our relationship with Jesus is governed by fear, doesn't prepare us. It just scares us. Let us be drawn by the winsome, matchless charms of the Lamb into a relationship with Him so that we live in readiness today and tomorrow we live in readiness today and the next day we live in readiness today. And as we live in readiness day by day, hoping that it's soon, it doesn't matter when it happens. We will meet Him with joy. But we still can cry, how long? Lord, please put this planet out of its misery. Bring us home. The sixth seal. Revelation chapter 6. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to the earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. Natural catastrophes, catastrophes that affect the very realities of creation. Matthew 24, immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Time after time, what Jesus speaks of in Matthew 24, John gives us visually in Revelation 6. At seal after seal is broken in heaven. Earth's history unfolds in a certain way. And then something happens. Because we're almost through opening the seals. We're all the way down to the sixth seal, and suddenly it stops. We're expecting the seventh seal to come right here, but instead of the seventh seal, there is an interlude. Revelation chapter 7. There's a, a, a detour. What, what, what happened? I thought we were opening the seals. And now we're off talking about something else. We'll talk about that. But before we do, let's notice the seventh seal. The seventh seal in Revelation 8.1, we'll read what it has to say. 
And just remember, in Revelation, numbers are not math, typically, but theology. 8-1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half hour. Matthew 24. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Silence in heaven. So seal is broken after seal, and the events of Revelation 6 and Matthew 24 are almost stunning in their similarities. Why does that matter? It matters because from Matthew 24, we get a more comprehensive teaching from Jesus about what happens during this time and how we are to prepare for his return. Revelation 6 is part of an apocalyptic book, highly symbolic. We have to be more tentative about the conclusions we draw. So what does Matthew 24 teach us? For some of you, this will be review. We studied Matthew 24 and 25 back in <clears throat> 2001 and also in 2016. But there are a couple of realities in Matthew 24 of great importance to us. The first is the kind of time that passes. So the disciples come to Jesus. What will be the sign of your return? How will we know when it's about to happen? And Jesus starts to outline the kind of time that will pass between where they are asking the question of Jesus and his second coming. As he speaks of the signs, there are moments when he says things like, but the end is not yet, or these are the beginnings of birth pangs. In other words, he's indicating that maybe a great deal of time will pass. In fact, in the four parables he tells after that, in Matthew 24 and 25, he tells us how to prepare ourselves for his coming, how to live every day in readiness. The first two of those parables contain a surprise when the master came back, when the bridegroom came back. We read in Scripture, he'll come like a thief in the night. That's exactly what happened. The people were surprised. Do you know what surprised them? Not that he came sooner than expected, but that he came much, much later than expected. That's what surprised them. That's what shocked them. That's what caught them unprepared. In the first one, the, the, the servant says, my master is gone a long time, and he won't be coming back for a long time. And then he makes ethical choices about how he lives his life and is caught unprepared. In the second one, the ten bridesmaids, they wait, they wait, they wait. gets later and later. Finally, by midnight, they're all asleep. Surely he would have come before now. The surprise is that it took so long. So Jesus is trying to tell his disciples something about how they live their life and what the time will look like. And he is saying to them, he is talking to them about the quality of time, not the quantity of time. He's saying the quality of the time between now and my coming will be such that things are in such bad shape, you're going to wonder if heaven has forgotten or if heaven even cares. Is history going anywhere? 
These things just keep happening. They just keep getting worse. Has God utterly forgotten us? That's the quality of time. That's what the time will be like. So be aware of that. And just keep living your life by following the Lamb wherever he goes. There's a second reality. And that is the signs that Jesus speaks of in Matthew 24, which, as you have seen, get repeated here in Revelation 6. If we were to drive together from here to Phoenix, a drive I avoid like the plague, I don't like long. I would fly from here home to Redlands if there was an airline that did that. I just don't like driving. Don't, certainly don't like driving long distances. But let's say for the sake of the illustration, we're going to drive from here to Phoenix. You know what the countryside is like. It's, it's grim and bare and desert and all the rest. And he says, we've got to take water. We might break down. And then that really puts me off driving. But anyway, we're going to drive from here to Phoenix. It's a rough journey if you watch the external terrain. But on the journey, we'll see two signs, two kinds of signs. The first kind of sign we will see is the sign that tells us the distance to the destination. It's 150 miles, 99 miles, 76 miles, whatever it says. This tells us how far it is to where we're going. No doubt this kind of sign was created by someone who got really tired of the voices in the back seat. Are we almost there? So that they can look out and see the sign, 76 more miles. Your father is driving. We'll be there in 38 minutes. <laughs> it gives us the... <laughs> it gives us the distance to the destination. That is not the kind of sign in Matthew 24 and Revelation 6. The other sign that you will see is a sign that simply tells you the highway you're on. So that as you drive, and as it gets longer, and it gets more barren, and you're wondering, did, did we are, are we on the right road? Is this really the way to Phoenix? Are we okay? And suddenly you see the sign, boom, 10. We're on the road, baby. We're on the right road. And you just keep watching for this sign, not because it tells you how far. We don't get that kind of sign typically but it tells you you're on the right road. You're on the way. Jesus, cognizant of the quality of time, the kind of time that would pass, wanted us to know you can trust even when things get this bad that history is going somewhere and at the end of this road is the kingdom of God. Now, before we can go any further, we need to say a couple of more things about these seals that have been broken. Because as the seals are being broken, we are tempted to think, and some have suggested, that all of this cataclysmic destruction is being caused by God. God is behind all of this. Do you remember our first week? The name of the foe, the arch enemy in Revelation? Diabolos. Diabolos, you remember what that name means? It literally translated, this is his title, it's literally translated slanderer, 
accuser, mudslinger. Do you know what a slanderer does, a mudslinger does? Creates all kinds of havoc and then points at someone else. He did it. She did it. They're the ones you need to look at. That's the job of this person. Any of you who are teachers know there's that kid. I was going to say something else. There's that kid in the classroom who creates havoc, and it's like, no, 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 he, he did it. That's the job of this person, to create havoc and then say, God did it. That's the kind of God you're dealing with. You can't trust him. Now, what's curious is throughout these verses here, as the seals are being broken in preparation for opening the scroll, there is the occurrence of what some scholars call the divine passive. Such and so was permitted to. Such and so was permitted. Well, who's doing the permitting? Who's behind this? Some scholars say it's God. But I beg to differ. Not just alone. Sigvid Tonstad, whose, whose statement I'm going to read in just a moment, is in the same place along with a variety of other Revelation scholars. You see, the divine passive functions because the one who is creating this havoc wants to stay behind the scenes, doesn't want to be known, wants to hide. When you're dealing with a slanderer, their great greatest weapon is deception and hiding. When you're te- dealing with the truth-telling lamb, the greatest weapon is trust and truth. So in talking about one of the, one of the writers, which will ultimately apply to all of them, Tonstad says this, a reading sensitized to conflict, meaning to the cosmic conflict, sees God acting by permission while Satan acts by commission. In other words, God is allowing certain things. Satan is deciding, very definitely choosing to do certain things. By the logic of divine permission, the second writer was permitted to take peace from the earth. By the logic of demonic commission, this writer was commissioned to take peace from the earth. These are not mutually exclusive options, but actions viewed from complementary perspectives. We have divine permission granted to evil powers to carry out their nefarious work. A consistent representation and use lead to the conclusion that all four writers represent evils which are not caused by the will of God. God does not will the action to happen, but God wills the other side to show its colors. Disclosure is a matter of necessity. When you're dealing with a slander, a mudslinger, you have to see what the truth is if you're going to assess things correctly. This creature, Diabolos, is in the business of you not knowing the truth about who's creating this. Create this havoc, and there's where you need to look. That's what, and people drink the Kool-Aid. Do you know how we know that? Because of what happens at the end of this. At the end of this, there is a passage which says this. Revelation 6, verse 15, Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? 
That's how we know they drank the Kool-Aid. The day of the wrath of the Lamb. This passage is the only time that appears in Scripture. Now, if this said, the day of the wrath of the lion has come, that's reason to fear. But in the New Testament world of John, a lamb was considered the most docile of creatures. This is a wounded lamb. And they say, you've got to be scared of him. The wrath of the Lamb. It is God we're dealing with, and we'll talk about that later. But for today, what are you talking about? The wrath of the Lamb. The Lamb saves you. I know your questions. Just hold them. Now, their question is, who can stand? And that is the reason for chapter 7. That is the reason for the interlude. The interlude is going to tell us who it is that can stand. Chapter 7, verse 1, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. That's the reason for who can stand. I'll tell you who can stand. Those who belong to the Lamb. Those are the ones that can stand. Revelation 14.1, again, tying it directly to the 144,000, which we'll see in one second here, tells us what the seal is. It's the name of the Father and the name of the Lamb. It's the Lamb saying, you're mine and you're mine, and you're mine, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, so that when the cataclysmic events begin to happen and this old earth descends into chaos and destruction, God looks out and says, you're mine, and I will care for you. That's the reason for this interlude before this silence. So who are these people? Verse 4 then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. One of the most contested passages in Revelation, certainly in Adventism, but beyond us as well. Who are the 144,000? Where do I apply? How can I get in? I want to be one of them. <laughs> Remember this. Generally speaking, in Revelation, numbers are not about math. They're about theology. Seven is a number of perfection, completion. Twelve is a number of fullness. Here you have a complete fullness. Twelve tribes, 12,000 from each tribe. This is a complete accounting for God's Old Testament people. Anyone who wants to be a part of this by following the land, you are welcome. But he's not done. Because something happens here 
that has happened the last two weeks. You remember in Revelation chapter 1, John heard one thing and saw another. He heard a voice behind me, he said, like a trumpet, and he turned to look, and it was a, a figure, turns out to be the cosmic Christ, standing among the candlesticks. He hears one thing, sees another. They're different, but they're the same. Last week in chapter 5, as he's curled up in a ball, weeping because no one has the worthiness to open the scrolls and to guide history, he suddenly hears a voice, don't cry, John, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He gets up and he looks, and what does he see? A wounded lamb, different, but the same. Same thing happens here. He hears a voice. Verse 4 says, I heard the voice, the number, 144,000. And then verse 9, after this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. He hears the number 144,000. He looks. It's a numberless multitude. It's God's people, Old Testament Israel. It's every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. It's 144,000. It's a numberless multitude. They're different, but they're the same. We're all there before the throne singing hallelujah and glory and honor and praise. Be to the Lamb who brought us into his presence. And the rest of the chapter, you know what the rest of the chapter is? The rest of the chapter is basically a worship service, praising God, praising the Lamb for what has been done for all of us. The last thing, Revelation 7, starting with verse 15. Therefore they, they, 144,000 numberless multitude, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So what happens to those who have suffered so profoundly? They will be shepherded by the Lamb, leading them to still waters and green pastures, abundantly fed, protected from harm. Do you know what that means? That means that for those whose lives have been snuffed out in the fires of Hawaii, for those whose lives were extinguished in the ovens of Auschwitz, for those whose lives were drowned in the great tsunami of the Indian Ocean, for those whose lives were crushed by the heel of Rome's heavy boot, for those who experienced the profound dangers, threats, and loss of life of the great tribulation, for those who follow the Lamb, wherever the Lamb goes, 
That means that one day God will stoop down before each one and will dry our tears. That That is the tender God of the apocalypse. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at LLUC.org.